to get into, so we're going to, uh, we're going to forego, forego our regular declaration about the authority of the Word, and uh, we're just going to jump in. So let's pray together first. Father in heaven, we, we want to be people who are fruitful and multiply in ways that you, you indicate here in Genesis. We want to be people who are participating in the good work that you've already begun. We know that good work because we've experienced it in our own lives. We know that you've redeemed us from ourselves and our own sinful ways. So we ask that you would continue to redeem us into the kinds of people who take on that work and that role that you've given to us here in the garden as we'll study today. That we would be people who meaningfully keep and work the garden in which you've placed us for the sake of your cause and your kingdom, Lord. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're picking up in chapter 2, verse 4 today. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Genesis. That's where we're picking up the story here. If you've been following the first four weeks of our study in Genesis, or if you've been in a a study guide, uh, if you've been following the study guides in the bulletin, or you've been in a life group, then you know that uh, the big picture of what we've been saying in Genesis is that God's creative work is about putting together, it's about putting together a context within which he can make himself known. Putting together a, a world, an environment where he can make himself known to us, where he can reveal himself to us. So Genesis 1 is about putting together a context within which he can make himself known. Genesis 2 today is mostly about what that looks like as it applies to us. The crazy part of all this is that we, in specific terms as we'll look look at today, we become the context within which God wants to make himself known. If chapter 1 is a big picture, sort of a a panoramic kind of view, then most of chapter 2 paints a sort of close-up picture of God's making of humanity. Chapter 2 is sort of the high-definition picture of the sixth, Day, if you're taking notes, that's a good one to write down. Chapter 2 is sort of a high-definition picture of uh, day 6 there. And so, so these are not two different uh, accounts of creation. These are not distinct and different accounts of creation, but one large picture with day 6 pulled out and described here in chapter 2 from verses 4 to 25. Uh, we're not going to go through all those verses today. We're going to go up through 17. Uh, We'll leave the next part of it for next week. Um, As an introduction to this passage today, there's one extremely important thing to notice in the text here that sets the tone for what's going on. If you're taking notes, you're going to write this part down. It's the change in the name for God. In chapter 1, a certain name for God is used. In chapter 2, here in verse 4 and following, you'll see a different uh, name used for God. In chapter 1, the, used, uh, the name used for God is Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. That's sort of a generic, transcendent, creator God kind of word. That was used 35 times in the first chapter. Uh, used to describe God as a sort of transcendent creator. But now, in our passage today, we are introduced for the first time to uh, Yahweh Elohim in verse 4. Here's what that change looks like on screen here. Elohim is used in the first chapter, and that's sort of the big picture creator God. 
But it's important for us to know that in our passage today, in chapter 2, the name changes. It's Yahweh Elohim. It's Lord God. So here in verse 4 is where your Bibles probably, uh, most of them probably say, Lord God. This, This new name, Yahweh Elohim, is used all the way through chapter 4, and then it's picked up again in chapter 7 when God makes his promises uh, to Noah. Now this, this name, this new name, Lord God, is a more personal, it's a more intimate kind of name. Instead of a, a sort of seemingly far off and distant creator God, like we saw in chapter 1, the God who makes the stars that are sort of far from reach, this is the God. This is the beginning of the counted scripture where God is a more personal, intimate, covenant, saving kind of God. This is the God who reaches down to have a relationship with us. This is super important in the passage here. It means that we are being introduced here in scripture to the God who wants to interact with us. He wants to interact with us so that we can know Him personally. It's why we talk about cultivating growth here at First Christian Church. Cultivating growth in our relationship with God. It's it's that relational kind of God that we are introduced to here. We call it the covenant name for God. Because because we're going to see in Genesis the development of this idea that He's making uh, this sort of deal with us, this sort of promise to his people. And the use of that, that, that Yahweh Elohim uh, begins here. Uh, when God makes his promise to Abram in uh, chapter 15 of Genesis that he will make of, of, of Abram a great nation, he uses this word. He says, uh, I, the Lord God, will make of you, I promise that I will make of you and your people a great nation. It's like saying, don't worry, Abram, I've got your back. That's a personal, intimate kind of way of God's relating to him. Remember when uh, Moses, later on here, comes into contact with the burning bush. Uh, This is an interaction with this more personal uh, name for God, Yahweh. Moses even asks him, he says, what is your name, God? And in Exodus 3, uh, God says to Moses, he says, I am. He calls himself, I am. Or it's even, I am who I am, or I, I will be who I will be. I am the God who does not change, who is, who is infinitely, perfectly holy, and yet at the same time, who wants a relationship with you. This is extremely important for our passage here uh, today. One last thing about this name for God. Uh, Jesus even picks up on this. He says in uh, John 8:58, when Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, he says, before even Abraham was, he's talking about himself, before Abraham was, I am. And so the Pharisees knew quite clearly, as Jesus is talking to them, they knew quite clearly that Jesus is making a claim to deity. He's claiming to be God because those Pharisees, they picked up rocks to stone him because of his making that claim. So when Jesus says, I am that God, the Pharisees thought they'd had every nook nook and cranny of the law figured out. They were sure they knew what it was going to look like when the Messiah came. 
It's sort of like Jesus is saying, you can know me far more personally than you ever thought possible. And so that's the kind of God we're being introduced to here in this passage. So this turn, this turn from the God who makes the cosmos, the stars in the sky far beyond us, it now becomes an intimate and personal and relational God who wants to know us just because of the name change. It's indicative for us that Genesis is indicating that God is working out His plan to make Himself known. He's putting together this context within, he went, within which He wants to make Himself known, and He's making it known to us and through us. Uh, one last interesting thing about this name for God. In chapters 2 through 4 is the only place um, here in, in, in verse... Uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 3... When uh, the serpent and Eve are in the garden, the serpent and the Eve, they consciously avoid this name when they're talking about God. They avoid the name of God as, as Eve is being lured into sin. We'll talk about that uh, later on. Moving on, verse 4. You may have picked up that verse 4 is an introductory sentence that sounds just like the very first verse in chapter 1. Chapter 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So here in verse 4 it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. It's sort of saying, Hey, remember that? This is like that. But I'm going to tell you more. Look at verse 5 here in uh, chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God has not caused it to rain on the land, there is no man to work the ground. That verse there, chapter 5, the thing we need to notice in this verse are the no's. There's no bush. There's no small plant. There's no rain. And there's no man. The problem that's being set up here isn't that there isn't stuff. It's, it's that there isn't someone to make the stuff do something. Sounds like chapter 1, if you'll remember, where we talked about God taking matter and making matter matter. This is similar to that. But, but, but the difference is that it's not God making matter matter. He's put us in the place to make the matter matter. It's the same here in verses 5 and 6. Describing here the sort of unkept, the untended condition of the earth before humankind was created. Verses 5 and 6. They're describing the condition of the land when God, verse 7, formed the man of dust. From the ground. The main thing that we are uh, meant to notice here is there, there is no growth happening. The problem is that there is no growth happening. It's not that it couldn't have. God, God could have made it happen, of course, but He's setting up a scenario that's, that's giving us responsibility and, and, and putting the responsibility to us. We'll see that a little more later on. Uh, there is a lack of growth here. In other words, the condition before God made man was that even all of this stuff that God had made, even the waters that flooded the land, did not produce vegetation. There was no man to work the ground. It doesn't take being a farmer or a gardener to know that you've got to have someone to toil to, to till the soil 
and to plant the seed before even these waters coming up from the, the ground did any good. It's probably a reference to the uh, Tigris and the Euphrates uh, overflowing. Uh, so verses 5 and 6 are describing the conditions that bring about no growth, and that's the problem. The, the text here is, is patently clear that this was put together to show that the essential missing element in the story right here is mankind. Nothing is happening. The problem is no growth, no fruit, no multiply, nothing going on with the stuff that was there until verse 7. Look at verse 7 there. This is where the action begins to pick up. It says, God forms Adam. It says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. This word formed here, it shows that God's creation of mankind was carefully and purposefully designed. It was an intentional kind of word here. Uh, that same word is used later on in Genesis uh, to indicate the intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart being evil. Uh, but this idea here in verse 7, the idea that God forms the man with intentionality and purpose, is then contrasted with the fact that he is made out of the dust from the ground. The Lord God formed intentionality, the man of dust from the ground. There's sort of a, a cool play on words going on here in the original language. I want to show you this here. It says, the Lord God formed the man. That's where we get this, this name Adam from, Ha-Adam. From, uh, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, Ha-Adamah. So, our name is dust. Our name is ground. I mean, that's sort of what it's saying. There's a contrast between that first part where it says, God intentionally formed, and then in the last part it says, dust from the ground. There's a contrast going on here. And, and isn't that true of us? On the one hand, we're made of God's image, made from his image, his goodness and character and nature in that first chapter, uh, verse 26, is, is talking about us being made in his image with, with intentionality. And yet, on the other hand, it says we're made of the stuff of dirt, of the ground. In Genesis 3, it says later on, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This sort of theme is in lots of places in Scripture. So once you read that, how, how does that make you feel about yourself? <laughs> feeling, feeling good about your purposes in life? Uh, it's sort of like God is saying something like what, what Bill Cosby used to say to his kids a lot of times. You know, I, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. There was a, a funny story about uh, something that, that little Johnny said about uh, being made of dust once after church. Uh, after church, this one Sunday, this, this little Johnny boy uh, told his parents that he just had to go and uh, talk to the preacher afterwards. And so the, the, the parents said, well, yeah, okay, sure. And uh, so little Johnny walks up and, and, and shakes the preacher's hand. And, and the pastor says, yeah, Johnny, what did you want to talk to me about? And, and uh, Johnny says, Pastor, I heard you say today that our bodies came from the dust. And when we die, our bodies go back to dust. That's good. Yes, I'm glad you were listening, Johnny. Uh, why do you ask? 
Well, and Johnny said, well, you better come over to our house right away and look under my bed because there's somebody either coming or going. Aren't we a funny mix sometimes of feeling like we've got purpose and, and, and intentionality and, and God made me special and no one like me ever exists and yet at the same time we're a funny mix of, man, I just feel like dirt. <laughs> I, mean, I mess up constantly. I mean, we're a funny mix of, of, of people as human beings. And I think something about that is supposed to indicate to us that the one who made us is the one who knows best for us. He's the one who put that purpose and intentionality and plan into our lives. And yet at the same time, we are people who fight that and we feel like dust. He's, he's the one who controls who we are becoming if we are giving ourselves over to His Spirit. Let's keep going in uh, verse 7 here. We'll, we'll see some more about this develop in the text. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Here the Lord breathes life into us. This, this, this breath of life implies a closeness and an intimacy. The same kind of word was used of the intimacy of a kiss in a relationship with a husband and a wife. Uh, one, one Bible nerd explains it this way. He says, uh, this, this breath idea is an extremely personal, a warmly personal, face-to-face kind of intimacy. And the significance that it's an act of giving. It's an act of God giving Himself to us. It's a self-giving act. The word breathed, literally that He blew is used of someone reviving a fire. It's like what happened in Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. When the reconstructed skeletons of those who were dead were brought to life by the inbreathing of the Spirit, the text says. Only when God breathes into the man does the man come alive. The physical stuff of matter is inhabited with God's Spirit to make it Alive. Now, I don't know if you've caught this yet, but the breath of God is the same breath, the same exact air that goes into the man's nostrils that makes him live. It is a shared breath. How cool is that? That what made you alive is the shared breath of the infinite, perfect otherworldly God who yet at the same time comes down to us as Yahweh and puts His breath and His Spirit into us. It fills this picture for us of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of infinite, perfect, and holy God. When God breathed into Adam, it says, the man became a living creature. Unlike the animals, we are the only beings animated, made alive, 
by the Spirit of God himself, God's breath. We are different in, in that we are given responsibility as bearers of that image, as people who have received that shared breath from God. In other words, our responsibility as people made in his image comes from him. I'm not manufacturing this. You can't make it up. Our purpose as people created in the first place comes from his very purpose. We become identified. We become identified with him. There's a cool, uh, cool story that sort of illustrates this. This idea of being identified <laughs> with, with someone much greater than us. There was an American tourist in Paris who purchased uh, this inexpensive amber necklace in this sort of uh, trinket store. And when he got to customs, he was shocked to find that, uh, that there was quite a high duty on, on, on paying uh, through the customs in New York. It aroused his curiosity, so, so he had this uh, necklace appraised because he hadn't paid much for it. Well, the person appraising this necklace looked uh, under a magnifying glass, looked closely, and the jeweler said, I'll give you 25000 for it. Well, the man, of course, was <laughs> surprised and, uh, and decided to have a second opinion and have another expert examine it. And that expert looked under the microscope and, and, uh, and looked at this necklace and said, I'll give you another 10000 for it, 35000 Well, the man was astonished, of course, and, and the jeweler said, just, just come and look, just come and look at, the, at this necklace under the glass. And, of course, what the, the man hadn't realized and, and hadn't seen about this necklace is that it has an inscription that says, uh, from Napoleon Bonaparte to Josephine. <laughs> The value, of that, the value of that necklace, not known to the man, came from its identification with the famous person. Friends, your value as someone made in the image of God can never possibly come from you, apart from the breath of God being put in you. Your value is in the fact that the infinite, perfect, and holy God whose character and nature was put into all creation as good all of a sudden was put into you and He called it very good because you are identified as His. We are given identity because we share in the breath that comes from God's own lungs, in a sense. And what that means is that we are people who are given a holy and sacred duty with our lives. This is all about our responsibility as people created in God's image. We have a sacred duty that now becomes clear in verse 8. Look at this. The Lord God planted. We are to grow into the people He's identified us as being, that He's breathed into us. We are to grow into those people. We are to grow into our responsibility as bearers of His image. The key word here is to grow. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted, it's a gardening term, a garden in Eden in the east. And there He put or placed. That word is sometimes used as planted. And there He planted the man whom He had formed. 
friends, if, if it's not yet abundantly clear, God is planting people. This world is his garden, and he's planting people. He is planting people who bear his image so that they will bear the fruit of God's good character and nature to the world and to one another. God has breathed into you and planted you. Verse 15 picks up this theme. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him or or planted him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work and keep the garden is to grow it. It's to be a gardener. Not just of, of, of earthly plants and animals. But that you and I have the amazing responsibility of taking part in the lives of people who can grow to demonstrate godliness. So my question for you is this. Are you a part of what he's doing to plant people? Or is your little kingdom too much your priority for you to give a hoot about anybody else? This is God's garden, not yours. This is his kingdom, not ours. If it's ours, we're wasting our time and efforts and energy. So, so friends, we are placed in this garden to be a part of what he's doing, to make people who demonstrate his goodness. This isn't about our little kingdoms. This isn't about having enough in our 401k for us to be satisfied someday and happy and comfortable. This, this isn't in the slightest bit of the term about our security and our safety. This isn't about having a roof over our heads so that, so that we can be comfortable. You see, we are so distracted by these things about which we give so much of our time and effort and energy when all the while people all around us suffer, dying on the vine because we refuse to be a part of God's agenda of planting and growing people. It's why Jesus and Paul and many others pick up on this theme and they say, this isn't about what you are doing. This is about what God is doing to make His commission known among the whole world of making disciples. Making disciples is about making people who grow to become people who are showing His character and nature and His goodness. What if, what if it isn't at all about the things that you've been raised to care about from day one? What if you've been sold a bill of goods that is a lie from the pit of hell and you've given yourself to that instead of planting people? Jesus didn't die so that we could have nice homes. He didn't die so that we could be secure. This was not about our safety. 
This was so that we could know Him personally. So that Yahweh Elohim could be known by people and they could become image bearers of His goodness. Let's pray.